Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd just like to remind you about the show's Patreon page, where you can access bonus content in exchange for a contribution of $5 a month. February's episode will be a reading of Engels, Marx, and Lenin's writings on the Paris Commune, so if you enjoyed those episodes of the regular show, be sure to check that out. Also, you can check out the eBay store where I'm trying to sell some of my old books. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the first episode of our series on the life and times of Joan of Arc, we discussed at length the Hundred Years' War between France and England, its origins, and the political and military state of affairs circa 1429. The short of it is that the Hundred Years' War came about due to a succession crisis in France. All the way back in the 1330s, the King of France died without leaving behind a clear heir. The King of England attempted to use this opportunity to claim the throne of France for himself, on the basis that the Plantagenet dynasty of England and the House of Valois of France historically had close blood ties. Although the English king, Edward III, technically had the best claim to the throne, the French nobility nominated their own successor, Philippe VI. War ensued. Fast forward about 90 or so years, and France had been devastated by nearly a century of on-and-off warfare, in addition to plague and famine. At this juncture, England had the upper hand. The English had forged an alliance with the neighboring Duchy of Burgundy, and together they defeated the French and forced them to the negotiating table. The resulting Treaty of Troyes, signed 1420, effectively made King Henry V of England the King of France as well. Those of the French remaining loyal to the House of Valois rallied around Dauphin Charles, the last king's son, who they viewed as the legitimate heir to the French throne, with Dauphin being the French term for crown prince. All hope now rested on the city of Orléans, a loyalist holdout besieged by the English. If the English could seize the city, the pathway to the Dauphin stronghold at Bourges would lay open, and the Kingdom of France may very well be lost to the English forever. Enter Joan of Arc, a young peasant girl from Domremy in eastern France. Joan was, by all accounts, a simple, honest peasant girl whose main activities consisted of helping her parents with the house and field work and attending mass on a daily basis. However, Joan was more special than that. From age 13 onwards, she claimed to have been receiving visions of angels bearing messages from God. From then onwards, she dedicated her life entirely to God. These angels told her that the kingdom of France was in grave danger and that God had taken great pity upon them. Then, at the age of 17, they gave her a mission. She was to travel to the nearby town of Valcolour, where she would find an army captain who would allow her to meet Dauphin Charles, the rightful king of France. Upon relaying a message to him, she would then lead an army to Orléans and defeat the English forces laying siege to the city. Once the siege was lifted, she was to escort the Dauphin Charles to the city of Rheims, where he would be crowned King Charles VII. Joan accepted this mission without hesitation. She went to Valcolour, where she found Captain Robert de Baldricourt. Naturally, the captain thought her to be insane and sent her away, but Joan persisted, and after her third audience with the captain, he agreed to give her an escort to the city of Chinon, where the Dauphin had temporarily set up court. Upon relaying a secret message to him, Joan found Dauphin Charles to be rather amenable to her proposal. After all, his kingdom was in rather dire straits. Why not send this girl to Orléans with the tools that she needed to win victory over the English? Joan was sent to the town of Blois, 
where the Delphon was building up his army. There, she was fitted with armor and given a sword, lance, and a banner which she would carry into battle. She was also given a horse and a squire, and all the other things that befitted a person of her rank. Joan showed an uncannily natural aptitude for the ways of warfare. Not only was she skilled in hand-to-hand combat, but she was very knowledgeable about tactics and strategy more broadly. It was perhaps for this reason that the men under her command were willing to tolerate her uncompromising style of leadership. She forbade anyone to swear or take the name of God in vain in her presence. She chased away all the prostitutes that typically followed armies in those days, and she insisted that each of her men engage in the sacrament of confession before going into battle. The situation in Orléans was desperate. By this point in time, the city had been under siege for over six months. At a few points, the English had tried to attack and seize the city by force, but each time they were repulsed by the French within, led by Jean de Dunois, also known as the Bastard of Orléans. At this point in the siege, the English were content to sit back and let starvation force the inhabitants of the city to surrender. And, after six months, according to one witness, quote, the inhabitants and citizens found themselves squeezed in such necessity by the besieging armies that they knew not whom to have a recourse to for a remedy, excepting for to God, end quote. It was at this time that a rumor made its way through the city, A young peasant girl had allegedly been sent by God himself to the king of France in order to fight on his behalf. At the same time, there was a vague but popular prophecy that the kingdom would be saved by a maiden on horseback. Could this girl be the savior of France whose coming was foretold? Given that during this period of history, the average person was far more superstitious, the belief that they were about to be miraculously saved was not discounted entirely. On the 27th of April, 1429, Joan of Arc departed from the city of Blois with her army and supplies for the relief of the city of Orléans in tow. She followed the leadership of the more senior captains who, unbeknownst to her, were taking a detour so as to approach the city from a more strategically sound angle. Joan was furious at this. She wanted to take the fight to the English immediately, to strike their main force, which was to the north of the city. Rather, the commanders decided to approach the city from the southeast, The French defenders, in order to distract the English, made a large sortie out of the city and engaged in the skirmish against the attackers. They were victorious and were even able to capture an English standard, or battle flag. They were also able to buy Joan and her army enough time to slip into the city unnoticed. The Bastard of Orléans met Joan and the others at the gate, whereupon the following exchange occurred. The Bastard himself relayed the incident. Quote, Are you the one they call the Bastard of Orléans? Joan asked. I am, I replied, and I much rejoice at your coming. Are you the one who gave the orders for me to come here on this side of the river, so that I not go directly against Talbot and the English? I replied that I, and others, including the wisest men around me, had given this advice, believing it to be best and safest. Joan said to me, In God's name, the counsel of our Lord God is wiser and safer than yours. You thought that you could fool me, and instead you fool yourself. I bring you better help than ever came to you from any soldier to any city. It is the help of the kingdom of heaven. This help comes not for love of me, but from God himself, who has had pity on the city of Orléans. Despite being chided by Joan, at the very moment he met her, the winds changed in a more favorable direction for a flotilla of ships traveling downriver to deliver supplies to the city. 
From that moment onward, the bastard said he had, quote, good hope in her, end quote. Joan entered the city triumphantly, mounted upon a horse and bearing her sacred banner, with the bastard of Orléans at her side. Everyone from soldiers to merchants and average townspeople came out in throngs to meet their savior. It was, according to one witness, quote, as if they had seen the Lord God himself descend among them, for they made so much joy, end quote. At one point, someone bearing a torch got pushed a little too close to Joan, and he accidentally lit her banner on fire. Joan hardly reacted, calmly putting out the fire like it was nothing. Early the next day, Joan attended a meeting of the War Council. They had unanimously decided that the best course of action was to attack the south bank of the Loire River, where the enemy was weakest. Joan was anxious to get into the fray immediately, but the bastard urged patience. They needed to wait for the remainder of the army, still at Bois, to arrive. Joan, disappointed, slunk off to the battlements to survey the English positions. On seeing a group of English soldiers, she called out to them, ordering them to withdraw or else. They responded by hurling insults back at her, calling her a mere cowherd, and threatening to burn her at the stake as soon as they were able to lay their hands on her. Three days passed without any major event. Then, on May 4th, news broke in the French camp. Another army, led by Captain John Fastolf, was en route to Orléans to reinforce the English. At this news, Joan grew rather excited, and she told the Bastard of Orléans, quote, Bastard, O oh Bastard, in God's name, I order you, as soon as you know of Fastolf's coming, to let me know it. For if he should pass without my knowing it, I promise you that I will have your head cut off, end quote. Later that afternoon, the bastard launched an attack against an English fortification, having neglected to tell Joan on account of the fact that she was taking a nap at the time. Joan suddenly awoke and ran to her page, Louis de Court, telling him that she had to go against the English at that very moment. As he helped her into her armor, she chided him, quote, Ah, bleeding boy, you did not tell me the blood of France had already been spilled, end quote. Along her way to the action, Joan encountered many dying and dead soldiers of both sides, and she wept for them all, because many had died without having confessed their sins first. Afterwards, she went to her priest and gave her confession, and she told him to encourage all other soldiers to do the same. The following day was a holy day of obligation, the Feast of the Ascension. Both sides recognized a temporary truce in honor of the holiday. On this day, Joan dictated her final message to the English, which read, quote, you, O English, who have no right in this kingdom of France, the king of heaven orders and commands you through me, Joan the Maid, to leave your fortresses and return to your country, and, if you do not do so, I shall make an uproar that will be perpetually remembered. Behold what I write for you, the third and final time, for I shall write you no further. Signed, Joan the Maid. End quote. She tied this letter to the end of an arrow and shot it toward the English encampment, calling out, quote, here is news. Read it. End quote. The English reacted much the same as they had earlier, flinging hateful comments back at Joan, calling her, among other things, the whore of the Armagnacs, the Armagnacs being another name for the French faction loyal to the house of Valois. At this, Joan began to cry profusely, but she soon calmed down, she claims, after receiving a comforting message from God. The following day, Joan awoke to find dozens of townspeople, inspired by her, had decided to form impromptu militias. Joan was eager to harness the energy of the people, so she proposed that they launch a sortie right away. The gate guard refused, but he relented under popular pressure. Together with these civilian militias and a host of professional soldiers, 
Joan crossed the Loire River, and they began an attack on a smaller English fortification there. This they were able to take easily, as they caught the English by surprise. The English retreated to a larger fortification, which they were able to defend far better. Disheartened, the men began to retreat. Some of the English soldiers left the fort and began to chase after them. It was at this point that Joan, who had just managed to catch up with her soldiers, drew her lance and charged towards the Englishmen, inspiring the fleeing Frenchmen to follow suit. With the English forced back into the fort, the French, quote, very bitterly and with much diligence assailed it from every side so that in a while they took it by storm. There were killed or taken captive the greater part of the enemies, end quote. This was Joan's very first military victory. It was strategically, and more importantly, morally, significant. But Joan did not have time to rest on her laurels. She planned, despite the urging of the war council, to engage in another sortie the very next day. She warned her chaplain, quote, Get up very early tomorrow and do the best you can to keep close to me, for tomorrow I have much to do, more than I have ever done before, and tomorrow blood will leave my body from above my breast. End quote. Surely enough, Joan's prophecy came true. About midway through the next day's fighting, she was struck in the chest with an arrow. Naturally, she became afraid for her life. Some of her soldiers, seeing her wounded, suggested they put a charm on it, but Joan replied that she would rather die than to do something she knew to be against the will of God. Instead, she received the usual treatment of olive oil and lard, and, before long, she was back in the fight. As the action dragged on throughout the day, and the French made very little progress, the bastard of Orléans prepared to call off the attack, until Joan implored him to hold off for just a little while longer. She ran off to a secluded area to pray for about fifteen or so minutes. Upon her return, she spotted the squire bearing her standard, took it from him, and, quote, waved it in such a manner that the others thought she was giving a signal to all attack at once, end quote. All of a sudden, the beleaguered French soldiers suddenly regained their stamina and courage, and they charged after the English fortification and forced them back. It was as if the English had simply lost all will to fight. Sources report that the English were killed or captured almost to a man. Many of those who tried to flee fell into the river and drowned. As he fled, Joan called out to the enemy commander, quote, Classidus, Classidus, yield thee to the king of heaven. Thou hast called me whore. I pity you, and I pity your people. End quote. Seconds later, this Classidus, laden with heavy armor, promptly fell into the river and drowned. Joan mourned greatly for his soul, and the souls of all those who had fallen in battle that day. But she had great cause for celebration as well. Not only had the Davin won, but with this last English defeat, they lost their entire foothold on the south bank of the river. Now that the city was no longer completely surrounded, it could be easily resupplied and reinforced. The English figured that it was pointless to keep up the siege. The following day, the English destroyed their remaining fortifications, arrayed in marching order, and departed the field, traveling back north. The siege of Orléans had been broken at last, thanks in large part to the leadership of Joan of Arc. News of Joan's victory at Orléans spread like wildfire throughout Europe. From Milan to Prague, chroniclers wrote of Joan, some singing her praises, others denouncing her as a heretic. As Joan's chaplain and confessor wrote so succinctly, quote, It was said to her, Never have been seen such things as you have been seen to do, and no book are to be read deeds like them. End quote. But, as author Regine Pernod points out, Joan's mood was not triumphant. Remaining humble as always, Joan summarized her martial accomplishments as her being the first to place the scaling ladder against the wall of the English fort. 
she believed that the most important part of her journey was still yet to come. Doubtless, however, this was a great victory for the French, and Joan played a large role in it. France, which everyone thought had been doomed, was now back in the fight. The king's closest advisors were undecided about their next move. The majority wanted to take advantage of their momentum and strike towards Paris, while the others, Joan included, wished to lead the king to Vrem so he could be officially crowned. From a strategic point of view, the party to retake Paris had the better idea. The English were retreating and the French army had the momentum. The road to Paris lay open. Rheim, on the other hand, was deep within Burgundian territory. Reaching it would prove difficult, but eventually Joan and her faction won the argument. The king would travel to Rheim and receive his crown, after which point, Joan argued, the power of his adversaries would diminish. Jean, the Duke of Alençon, was given command over a vanguard force of 2,000 for what would become known as the Loire Campaign. Joan effectively served as his second-in-command. The army under Joan and the Duke of Alençon was to ensure the path to Rheim was clear for the king and the remainder of the army. Their force blazed ahead, winning a series of minor battles at Gergot, Mung, and Beaugency, but their most significant battle was to be won at Pate. On June 17th, the French encountered the English outside the village of Pate. The English force was five times larger than that of the French, a quote from a French soldier present. From every direction you could see the English, marching in handsome array, end quote. The English, anticipating battle, arrayed in formation, sending their archers to the forefront, and setting up spikes designed to halt cavalry charges. The French followed suit and took up battle positions. A standoff ensued, neither side willing to attack the other. The English sent a herald to the French, telling them that it was up to them to initiate the combat. Joan replied that, since it was late in the day, they should all find their lodgings, and that they would do battle tomorrow. The French camp was anxious. Joan, addressing the Duke of Alençon, told him to make sure that he had good spurs. When the Duke questioned if she planned to turn and run from the English, Joan answered, quote, No, it is the English who will not defend themselves, and who will be conquered. You will have need of good spurs as you chase after them. End quote. The battle got off to a start the following morning. Confusion gripped the English ranks as they split off into three separate forces. The French took advantage of the pandemonium to defeat each of the English contingents separately, and eventually the English were routed from the field. Of the 2,000-strong force of the French, the chroniclers report that only three died. A more likely figure of casualties is closer to 100 or so. As for the 5,000-strong English, casualties are estimated at about 2,500, including both dead and captured. Among the captured was Sir John Talbot, a famous English army captain. Historians consider the Battle of Pate to be equivalent to the Battle of Agincourt in terms of significance. With their defeat at Pate, the English position in central France was dealt a crushing and irreversible blow. The road to Paris, and more importantly, to Rheim, now lay open for the French. The Dauphin and his retinue took about a week from the Battle of Pate to catch up with Joan and the vanguard force. On June 29th, this united force continued northeast toward Rheims. On July 4th, they came upon the city of Troy. Troy, a city which remained loyal to the Anglo-Burgundian cause, was of great symbolic significance. It was here that the Treaty of Troy was signed, the treaty which disinherited Dauphin Charles and declared Henry V to be the rightful ruler of the French kingdom. Joan sent a message to the city in advance, reading, quote, Loyal Frenchmen, come before your Lord Charles. Have no fear of your bodies nor your goods, for we shall forge a solid, good peace. I commend you to God. End quote. 
Still, Troy refused to surrender. Joan got down to business and asked the king for permission to begin a siege of the city. The king's advisors were skeptical. They argued that they did not have time to carry out a protracted siege. Supplies were beginning to run scarce. They had to resupply soon or they would never make it to Rem. Joan replied, quote, In God's name, within three days I shall lead you into the city of Troy by love or by force, and either way with courage. All of Burgundy will be stupefied by it. End quote. Joan worked tirelessly through the night, posting soldiers outside the walls of the city and setting up artillery positioned to knock down the walls. The next morning, the citizens of Troy had become so fearful of an attack that they relented. They opened up the gates to Dauphin Charles, and he entered the city triumphantly, with Joan at his side, bearing her iconic standard. After taking about a day or two to rest in the city, the army was off once again by July 12th. As they continued on to Rem, cities in their path did not even make the pretense of trying to resist like Troy. Each successive one bent their knee to the king. On July 16th, the army reached the outskirts of Rem. Despite being so deep within Burgundian territory, a deputation of the city came out to pay homage to Delphine Charles. According to Régine Pernod, this was the first time in the course of the war that such loyalist sentiments had been expressed in Burgundian lands. Delphine Charles made his triumphal entry into the city that evening. The populace, upon seeing the king, cried out, Noel, Noel, for in peacetime, the coronation of French kings was traditionally done on Christmas Day. Preparations for the coronation were undertaken rather hastily, and the very next day, the coronation took place. The ceremony would be far more humble than those of years past, the reason being that most of the traditional coronation regalia, the scepter, the orb, the crown, etc., had been carried off to Paris by the English to be used in the crowning of their king, Henry, as king of France. A replacement crown was tracked down, but, most importantly, the sacred chrism oil was still in the city. The morning of July 17th, four knights known as the Guardians of the Holy Vial delivered the vial of the sacred oil to the cathedral at Rheims. They were followed by a long procession of bishops, priests, and noblemen surrounding the soon-to-be king. Upon entering the cathedral, a hymn was sung, and the Dauphin knelt before the altar, whereupon the bishop anointed the king on his head, chest, shoulders, elbows, and wrists. The anointing was the central part of the ceremony. This sacred rite reaffirmed the king's divine right to rule, thereby dispelling any doubts of legitimacy that might have been planted by the English. Following the consecration, Dauphin Charles, now King Charles VII, was ceremonially crowned. A quote from an onlooker describes what happened next, quote, And at the hour when the king was consecrated, and when they had placed the crown upon his head, every man cried out, Noel, and the trumpets sounded so that it seemed as if the walls of the church should have crumbled. End quote. Joan took center stage during the ceremony. In what was, without a doubt, the proudest moment of her life, she finally saw the king whom she was destined to help, finally anointed. Throughout the ceremony, Joan, instead of standing towards the back with Charles' other military officers, stood towards the front, bearing her banner in hand. When later questioned as to why she had the impudence to detract from a moment that should have belonged to Charles and Charles alone, Joan replied, quote, that banner had gone to great pains. It is only fair that it should receive some of the honor. End quote. At the moment that Charles was crowned and the cathedral erupted in celebration, Joan prostrated herself before the king and said, while weeping and embracing his legs, quote, Gentle king, from this moment the pleasure of God is executed. He wished me to raise the siege of Orleans and to bring you to Rheims to receive your anointing, 
which shows that you are the one true king to whom the kingdom of France should belong. End quote. With the siege of Orléans broken and her Dauphin crowned king at Rheims, it would seem that Joan had fulfilled her destiny allotted to her by God. But Joan would not be content to simply lay down her arms and return to herding sheep. She was not one to leave anything half-finished. She would not stop until she saw the duplicitous English driven from the country and the treacherous Burgundians brought to heel. Indeed, the victory at Orléans and the crowning of the king breathed new life into the French war effort as a whole. With Joan the Maid guiding them, the men of the French army felt as they could have retaken the entire country in a mere matter of days. As one chronicler put it, one Frenchman could have defeated ten Englishmen in those days. Meanwhile, a great fear of the Maid of Orléans had been inculcated in the English and Burgundians. Many men refused to venture beyond the walls of Paris for fear of the Maid. Joan wanted nothing more than to be unleashed, to be sent north, to strike at Paris and at Normandy. But the newly crowned King Charles VII wanted to go on a different type of offensive. Almost immediately upon being crowned, Charles VII thrust himself into diplomatic negotiations with the English and Burgundians. Relying on his dynastic ties to the Duke of Burgundy, Charles was certain that he could secure a peace with Burgundy and decouple them from their alliance with England. The logical next move for the French army would have been a march on Paris, but the king, stalling for time, had the army march along at what was described as a funeral pace. It took the army more than three weeks to cover the relatively short distance between Rheims and Paris. Joan was itching for a fight. Finally, by the end of August, the French army had reached the outskirts of the city. After a series of indecisive skirmishes, the king ordered an outright attack on Paris. The action centered on the Saint-Honor Gate, on the western side of the city. Joan, bearing her standard as always, was the first to lead her troops across the ditches outside the walls. A quote from a witness, The assault was hard and long, and it was wondrous to hear the noise and the explosion of cannons and the culverines that those inside the city fired against those outside, and all manner of blows in such great abundance that they were beyond being counted. End quote. Joan and her men were able to keep up the fight until around dusk, at which point Joan was wounded with a crossbow bolt to the thigh. The French had made no progress, but Joan insisted on continuing the fight. She was eventually dragged away from the front lines, against her will, and she was taken to where she could get some rest. The attack having failed, the king ordered a retreat. It has been suggested that Charles VII didn't actually wish to retake Paris then and there, and that the siege was merely a show of force. The Duke of Alençon had built a bridge over the moat so as to continue the battle the next day, but the king ordered the bridge to be destroyed. Meanwhile, negotiations with the Duke of Burgundy continued. Around the same time as the attack on Paris, King Charles managed to secure a four-month truce with the Burgundians. This came at a great cost, however, as, in order to secure this truce, the French were forced to cede to the Burgundians a number of strategically important cities in the northeast, including the town of Compiègne. Joan felt the slightest bit betrayed by the king's recent decisions, but there was little that she could do. Her counsel meant very little at that time. The king, afraid that his image would be besmirched if he continued to associate with Joan, began to distance himself from her. Regine Pernod remarks that Charles VII began to treat Joan as if she was a loyal retainer, whom he was about to force into retirement. At Joan's request, the king exempted her hometown of Domremy from taxation. The kings of France continued to honor this request until the monarchy was overthrown in 1792. Charles VII also granted a knighthood to her entire family, and all the benefits it entailed, but still, he kept Joan at arm's length. 
While the truce with the Burgundians and the English was in effect, there was very little for Joan to do. During this time, she wrote, or rather dictated, a scathing letter to the Hussites of Bohemia, a radical group attempting to split off from the Catholic Church, wherein she promised to, quote, remove your madness and foul superstition, taking away either your heresy or your lives, end quote. She also dictated a letter to the English, imploring them to leave France and instead go on a crusade against the Bohemian heretics. This call went unanswered. Joan also busied herself with attacking bandit strongholds, which had arisen in the midst of the anarchy of war. One day, while passing through the village of Ligny, Joan was approached by a couple who begged her to help their newborn, unbaptized baby, whom they said was on the brink of death. Apparently, the child had been more or less dead for the last three days. Joan claimed that he was, quote, as black as my coat of mail, end quote. Nevertheless, Joan stayed with the family and prayed with them for a while, and all of a sudden the child snapped awake. The baby then received baptism, but died three days later. The peace with Burgundy was not fated to last. Charles VII wanted to hold a ceremony to commemorate the truce, which kept being delayed, and he would not hand over those aforementioned cities until the commencement. The Duke of Burgundy, however, was impatient to receive these cities, so, in May of 1430, he broke the truce and began to besiege the city of Compiègne. Joan, excited for some action at last, rushed off to join the fight. A Burgundian chronicler provides us with the following description of Joan, quote, She mounted her horse, armed as would a man, adorned with a doublet of rich cloth of gold above her breastplate. She rode a very handsome, very proud gray horse, and displayed herself in her armor, and her bearing as a captain would have done, with her standard raised high and fluttering in the wind, and well accompanied by many noble men, she sallied forth from the city. End quote. The fighting was fierce, but the Burgundians had the edge this time. The French were forced to retreat back into the city. Joan, not one to leave a fight behind, stayed behind with the rear guard, covering the retreat. While she was fighting off the Burgundians, an archer managed to grab her and pull her off her horse. Surrounded by enemy soldiers and lying flat on the ground with no recourse to keep fighting, Joan surrendered. Who exactly it was that managed to capture the indefigable Joan of Arc is a mystery. All contemporary sources identify the assailant merely as an archer, but that doesn't exactly narrow it down. More recent sources suggest that this archer may have been a turncoat within Joan's ranks. Joan did often prophesize that she would meet her end when she would be betrayed by one of her own. Whatever the case, Joan was soon taken to the enemy camp of Lionel of Wandome, a Burgundian nobleman who accepted her surrender formally. Reportedly, quote, the English and Burgundian partisans were more joyous than if they had captured a king or 500 enemy combatants, for they did not fear or dread captains or war chiefs as much as they had the Maid of Orléans. And it is on that note that I will end things for today. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to see what has happened, as Joan is handed off to the English and railroaded through a sham trial that would end in tragedy. We will also then discuss the long-lasting impact that Joan of Arc has had on the world after her death. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page in the eBay store, if you wish to support the show financially, that is. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.